1: Finding yoga, finding um, Vipassana meditation, but also plant medicine has been a huge part of the, uh, the medicine bag that has allowed me to reconnect to my joy and my aliveness and a feeling of freedom and liberation in this capacity that I am in partnership with the universe, co dreaming, co dreaming my reality into being and that's really significant for somebody who comes from my particular background to feel that level of of agency returning to my heart again.
2: Hello, friends, and welcome back to the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast with David Nickturn on the Be Here Now Network. My name is Michael Kammer, your host and monologist, and on behalf of all of us here at Be Here Now and Dharma Moon, we sincerely hope this podcast finds you as well as can be, and we are grateful that you are joining us. Here at CSM, our guide, David Nickturn, discusses how to lead an integrated life involving spiritual practice, creative expression, and right livelihood with guests who embody and manifest these principles in their own life. And for this episode, we are very fortunate to have Dr. Sirah King joining us in conversation. Dr. King is a mother, a neuroscientist, political and learning scientist, medical anthropologist, social entrepreneur, public speaker, and certified yoga and meditation instructor. This episode features a very warm discussion between Dr. King and David, elegantly moving from discussions of neuroscience and Buddhism, defining and working with trauma, bardo states, dreaming, AI, and even biosynthetic future ancestors. Also in this episode, David manages to drop in one of his favorite topics of discussion, octopi. My Octopus Teacher is one of his favorite films, And I think he appreciates them because octopuses just have such a natural elegance and intelligence that we really appreciate here at Dharma Moon. Because we hold the view that through mindfulness practice, our innate wisdom can shine forth and we can manifest elegance in any conditions. And speaking of mindfulness, if you're interested in deepening or beginning a mindfulness practice, we have lots of resources and offerings at dharmamoon.com for you to connect with. We just launched an on-demand Take It At Your Own Pace Foundations of Mindfulness course. And if you want to go deeper into Buddhism, Ethan Nickturn is launching another round of his year-long Buddhist studies course beginning in January 2024. Whenever you're listening to this, we have many offerings up and we encourage you to head over to dharmamoon.com and connect with us in Mindful Community. Okay, just a little more biographical info on our esteemed guest and we will get to the episode. Dr. Sarah King specializes in the study of the relationship between mindfulness, art, complementary alternative medicine, community health, and social justice. She is currently a postdoctoral fellow in neurology at OHSU, a Garrison Institute fellow, and a member of Google's well-being think tank Vitality Lab. She is the founder of MindHeart Consulting, a scientific consulting firm through which she offers up the Science of Social Justice framework and the Systems-Based Awareness Map, which she created to explore our capacity to heal intergenerational trauma and promote the well-being of collective nervous systems. She's currently partnered with the Museum of Modern Art in New York to bring her applied neuroscience research to the world as a part of their Artful Practice for Well-Being initiative. If you're interested in learning more about Dr. King, head over to MindHeartConsulting.com and her Instagram handle is at MindHeartCollective. Okay, folks, that's enough up front for our intro. And now it is a privilege and pleasure to present to you episode 49 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Buck podcast featuring Dr. Sarah King. Enjoy. Okay.
3: So I'm thrilled, I'm going to be honest about it. My guest today is Dr. Sarah King, uh, who's a new friend, but I think we have threads going back into antiquity together. Uh, and one of those great people who I sat down with, and then it was three hours later after we, after we realized that we've been talking for a little bit, and we co-presented at a, at a uh, workshop uh, in Boone, North Carolina, this summer. I just want to tell everybody, um, Sarah is a multi phenomenon in that she has many, many uh, hats that she wears. Uh, she's a mother, a neuroscientist, a political and learning scientist, a medical anthropologist, a social entrepreneur, a public speaker, and a certified yoga and meditation instructor. An internationally recognized thought leader in the interdisciplinary field that examines the relationship between complementary alternative medicine, social justice, art, and mindfulness from the perspective of neuroscience. I bow at your lotus feet. Please, let's talk about all these things, okay? So, And I know you wanted to mention where you are sort of hanging out these days, so maybe we could do that.
1: Yes, yes. So these days I am chilling academically at uh, UC San Diego in their Empathy and Compassion Lab. Um, Most specifically, Empathy and Compassion in Human Health and Social Justice, run by the wildly illustrious Dr. Gentry Patrick, who is himself Um, a world-renowned neuroscientist, and he's absolutely dedicated to the cause of scaling empathy, compassion, and belonging in the world. So it just really feels magnificent to be a part of a group of humans whose every thought, every action, every moment of their life is really focused in on understanding how this can be done
3: moment of resting mind, resting mind face. <laughs> that is so cool. And I thought, of course, as a musician composed, I thought, on the answering machine, what are we playing? Um, Dionne Warwick singing, What the World Needs Now is Love, Sweet Love. That's the only thing that there's just too little of. The
1: world needs now, yeah, is love okay. with love. Is it that one? That's it. Hmm. You got Beautiful. me to
3: that's... I, I, I did, and that's um, <laughs> that's now on the Akashic record forever. So <laughs> we can we cannot expunge it.
4: No oh, turning back. <laughs> okay.
3: Yeah, that's that's what happens. And then you cut to three years later. We're producing an album, and you go neuroscience, schmuroscience. I'm not into it anymore. You know, um, Rodney <laughs> called it called a limo. You know, it's uh, like yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs>
1: totally
3: totally <laughs> and and then interestingly enough you and I crossed in london right after that we were in london at the same time and just through a kind of uh, malfeasance of orchestration we did not get to visit in london which which is um that'll be that won't happen the next time we'll just over, we'll override any any obstacles um but you're traveling around a lot these days too are you not
1: yeah, absolutely. So when I was um when I was in London it was because uh, just prior I was at Oxford University and I was hanging out with none other than Dr. Bessel van der Kolk wow. who is the author of The Body Keeps the Score mm-hmm. which a lot of people consider to be the seminal text on trauma that really introduced the field of trauma to the public, um, to lay people. And it was at uh, the UK's biggest trauma and mental health conference. And, and did you
3: present there too?
1: No, I actually didn't present. They just flew me in so that I could hang out and be cool.
3: <laughs> wow.
1: Check out the proceedings. Yeah.
3: Wow. Well, that must be a prelude for a further engagement would be my guess. As a. Oh,
1: absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. More,
3: more is cooking there, right?
1: Yes, I mean as you know when we were when you and I were presenting at the Ramdas retreat I was talking a lot about this concept of ancestral intelligence
4: mm-hmm.
1: and a lot of my research has to do with exploring the ways that we can heal intergenerational trauma through the use of engaging with art and contemplative practices so that was part of the reason why I was there was to just Get an understanding about how the world's global experts, at least that one cadre of them, how they're thinking about trauma as it's manifesting individually, interpersonally, collectively, societally. And what are the tools that we have to um, engage with how we might heal from that?
3: You know, trauma is a big topic these days. And um, I'm wondering... How would if let's take a a lay person like myself um, and how would you define it and talk about trauma? So for folks out there who are like trying to put it into their uh, frame of reference, is there some way you could guide us through what it is, what people are referring to about it?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's a very simple way to think about it. Um, it used to be back in the, you know, around the era of the Vietnam War, is when Dr. Bezel van der Kolk really started to talk about um, PTSD. And they were looking at populations like uh, military veterans who had obviously gone through horrors and what they had experienced and how it was that those like significantly violent events really remained in their bodies. But I think that the field has really developed since then. And what we understand now is, you know, we all know that we, the body has a nervous system and the nervous system has three different components. One of them being what's called the autonomic nervous system. So a lot of the time, you know, when we're going through our daily lives and we're breathing and we're blinking and we're, our body is just doing all this magic for us, right? You don't have to sit and say, okay, now, hand, move towards the keyboard, right? It's all happening for us automatically, right? So the autonomic nervous system is responsible for all those autonomic, automatic physiological functions that are happening. And alongside of that is emotion, right? So all throughout the day, we're just like riding these waves of emotion and emotion is oftentimes talked about in neuroscience as arousal, right? These waves of emotion that get aroused in our bodies. And one of the primary functions also of the autonomic nervous system is it is constantly sensing, looking around at our environment to see am I safe? Safe to engage socially? Um, do I belong? Uh, Is there some sort of reward for me in pursuing this environment or this person or this interaction? Or is there some kind of danger present here? And if there is danger present, how do I get away from it, right? So that's where people have probably heard about like fight, flight, freeze, faint. And those are these like four functions that are happening all the time when we're entering into a room, into a new space, and we're kind of, like gauging for ourselves, you know, like, is this a place in which I can approach and be safe or do I need to get the heck out of here? You know what I mean? So really that's what we're talking about. That is the body's um, trauma response that is always being modulated, particularly by our breath, which is part of why contemplative practices are not just some sort of like, you know, religious or philosophical or ideological or you know those kinds of phenomenon i mean <clears throat> contemplative practices are that but part of their magic is the ways in which they are harnessing the body's physiology because our body is always sensing from the ways that we are breathing and holding our body and relating with ourselves in our minds and in space, it's using that to gauge our level of connection, our feelings of belonging, um, mm-hmm. compassion. All of that is actually built into the function of our nervous systems and part of what we're training for when we are engaged with contemplative practices, modulating that
3: trauma response. If you were taking a little Buddhist leap here into this picture, what is the entity that is compiling that data that is managing that operation? What is that? I mean, most people would just say, oh, that's just me doing that. But that's not very precise from a scientific point of view. What, what I, how would you, within the scientific paradigm, how would you describe that? What is, what is that that's holding it together, that's calculating, that's, re, that's manipulating that data?
1: So I think that that's where we would talk about the mind-body connection. So the autonomic nervous system, you have your parasympathetic nervous system. And that's really like the parasympathetic nervous system is responsible for two primary components of our awareness. The the parasympathetic nervous system comes on when we are at rest, when we're digesting, when we're calm, when we're feeling spacious, um, or it also can come on in its more dorsal function. And that is when we are engaged in the emotional states of feeling maybe like helplessness or hopelessness or depression, right? Anxiety. Then there's also the sympathetic branch of the nervous system. And that is what comes online when we're in that fight or flight, right? When we're angry, right? When we're feeling enraged, when we're like ready to like go and become reactive in the state of some sort of conversation or interaction or when we're like I just got to get out of there and part of what is modulating all that physiology are the states of our mind the thoughts that are going through our mind narrativizing constantly generating stories about what happened in the past what's going to happen in the future so there's this real delicate dance and interplay between the mind and the body that is happening to construct a sense of self, me, I, in any given moment.
3: So you could you correlate that to uh, what in, in the Buddhist psychology is called Abhidharma? Uh, mm. I, have, have you studied Abhidharma to some extent? No, we could have just a it. Because what it is, it's the construction of consciousness and the sense of self. It's called the five skandhas is one aspect of it. Have you heard of that, skandhas? And they're... They're thought of as bundles, uh, you know, so the, the sense of continuity that it's all one clumped up thing, when you look at it more carefully, you see, just like you're breaking out the nervous system into into component parts, you break out the cognitive process into component parts. And it starts with just a very, very – well, it starts with non-dual awareness. That's, where, that's the ground of it. It just is a field of awareness. But out of that, it's like something sticks its head up and goes – Where am I? The crudest level of I and other, of duality, just appears out out of ignorance of the basic ground. It just goes, huh? What happened? You know, it's very, very quick. And then very quickly, the layers come on top of that. Like, what does that other thing feel like? What concepts do I develop about it? And then a whole flow, which is the fifth skanda of a narrative, a fully developed narrative is the fifth skanda. And now you have an I, an other, a drama, a narrative that's all been, and the, the interesting thing about what it's described is that happens within microseconds. Yes. Uh, it's very fast. Is that, would neuroscience back that up, that it all happens quickly?
1: That's why, there, that's why there have been these like really gorgeous conversations that have been happening between the, Uh, neuroscience community and the the Buddhist community because everything that has been um, investigated and analyzed at the level of contemplative practices has been confirmed by the neuroscience. It's very interesting that that, um, that relationship, that conflation exists.
3: Well, would the neuroscientists get to the same point of getting into the granularity of it and saying, it's a quantum field. There is nothing in it that has a permanent fixed identity. Would they go that far? Or would they say, no, there's still some sense of self embedded in there somehow? <laughs> I,
1: I, think, <laughs> I think it depends. So the neuroscience community is extremely diverse. And um, there are a lot of different perspectives and approaches. Some of them are you know, very mechanistic. And so they're going to get down to like the, the cellular level, the microbiological level or something like that. And I don't know that they're going to be really interested in tinkering with the quantum per se. Uh-huh. Um, others are definitely engaged with like, you know, questions of like, um, how is it that photons might be part of the substrate of that which is communicating synaptically and constructing part of this aspect of you know the emergence of self in any given moment um you know i have i have heard certain theories um that are like merging neuroscience in the quantum field certain people asserting the possibility that um we are hallucinating our existence and really all that there is of humanity is that we're a bunch of kind of like floating brains floating uh, collaborative synaptic collections in time and space that are like hallucinating this whole me, you, I on a planet, you know, reality kind of thing. Even, even going as far as to assert that, um, what we are, there's a, there's actually an excellent, um, I don't know if you ever watch Kurzgesagt videos. It's this great German, animation company that I love. They produce these awesome scientific animation videos that are like wildly vetted and precise and very accessible, Kurzgesagt. It's German for in a nutshell. And they have this episode where they propose that perhaps all we are is the dream of a dead universe.
3: And aren't there, there are, you know, authentic uh, ancestral uh, communities that would like um, talk about the dream, you know, like a lot of shaman from different parts of the world would talk about um, dreaming reality into place and shifting the dream. As, as, as So that's sort of not out of alignment with that perspective, is it?
1: No, I w- I wouldn't think so. And I would also, you know, I'm, I'm always the kind of person who wants to say the kind of scientist who will say That science is just one perspective. It's just one form of storytelling. It is not the complete or whole story. And I know that for myself, um, you know, I'm going to deviate a little bit in, in the conversation right now, but I am a person who has personally previously suffered a great deal from um, really severe depression and anxiety. And when I was in graduate school, I was diagnosed with PTSD. Um, So really heavy suffering, you know, that I was really uh, very deeply identified and entangled with in terms of my personal narrative. I, I really felt for a very long period of time that my body was a trap. And it it was like I was living in a in 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 a in a in a shell that was a living hell, with all of these just catastrophes that were constantly playing over and over in my mind, right? That I couldn't escape from. And um, really, um, I would say that finding yoga, finding um, vipassana meditation, but also plant medicine, has been a huge part of the the medicine bag that has allowed me to reconnect to my joy and my aliveness and a feeling of freedom and liberation in this capacity that I am in partnership with the universe, co-dreaming, co-dreaming my reality into being and that's really significant for somebody who comes from my particular background to feel that level of, of agency returning to my heart again. And that's why I would say that that like the, the idea of um, co-dreaming, participatorily dreaming our reality into being really is in alignment with my personal experience of
3: life. And what's the trace? Like you're describing a previous shape to your mind stream you know and your emotional being, where is that now do you, do you visit revisit that? Does it surge up at times when you're under stress is it has it kind of transformed into a different kind of uh, flavor and texture?
1: I'm glad that you asked that um, I would say on a day to day Basis that um in terms of the passage of my thoughts, I don't necessarily <laughs> one of my best friends, Rashid Hughes, is always he, he jokes, he jokes a lot of the time whenever I start a sentence and I say, I think da 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 da. He's like, You're not thinking, <laughs> you're not actually thinking, because the way that I experience um myself is is quite spacious in terms of the cadence and rhythm of thoughts, I I feel that I'm mostly very directly engaged with what is happening now, here and now, rather than thinking about what might be happening now, if that makes sense. Sometimes, sometimes I have noticed that there may be like a narrative stream that slips in and it will be a very compelling story, a hook, right? My hooks for me will be, this person at some point in my past said or did this thing that was really messed up. Oof, that hurt me so bad. And then that dream will start to filter up in my consciousness and I can feel the hooks inside of me being like, Ooh, that's juicy. Let's walk down that path. Let's hop on that bike. Let's go for a ride. Right. But then there's like a very gentle noticing of the existence of that narrative. And what I've come to understand is that my anxiety and my depression actually present themselves as that slipstream of story about harm and suffering. And so when I notice it as such, I immediately feel a lot of compassion.
3: So you don't feel stuck there. Would that be fair to say?
1: I, I feel I feel that um, it is a cloud that I've noticed in the sky. hmm Oh, wow. Look at the shape. Look at the color. Look at the content. Look at the quality of that cloud. That's incredible. But I feel that I'm remembering myself as the sky in that moment. And then the cloud... It sounds
3: sort of like revisiting a prison that you used to be incarcerated in.
1: Yes. That, That's yeah. a very...
3: Right. A very different kind of experience than being stuck there, trapped there.
1: Yes. Yes. I would use that precise language. Uh,
3: Which is uh, phenomenal to witness and to hear about. Your story is very moving to me. uh, Always, you know, as soon as we met, I was very moved by your story. But also, I think a lot of people would resonate with having had some kind of uh, deep karmic experience that, in which they didn't have any agency, they didn't have any awareness, and they were, you know, it, it caught in a spiral. There's a very interesting uh, practice, Sarah, that is um, something Pema Chodron brought forward, but she, I think, she really got it from Zigar Control Rinpoche. It's called Shenpa. Have you ever heard of Shenpa? It's a, no. Tibetan, it's a Tibetan practice. And what the, the Shenpa is that feeling of being hooked. Yeah. The hook, the hook goes in. Like whether it's depression, anxiety, or, or some kind of reactivity, you feel the hook going in because you have some mind training, you're aware of the hook going in, as opposed to it just slips in when you're you know not paying attention. And then you flip it, you use the feeling of the hook going in to wake up further right in that moment. I you you use it, it like a trampoline. You, know, you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah. And I would say for myself, I mean, I don't know if this is what Pema would say, but one of the most powerful tools that I have in my practice is curiosity. So when I feel that hook in the past, the feeling of the hook would kind of double down with like fear and a lot of shame. Oh, no, I've been hooked again. This is evidence of my lack of enlightenment, you know, or my ignorance or stupidity or something like that would be The narrative slipstream. Now, when I feel that hook, I can feel myself. It's almost like I'm over here, I'm doing something else, but up, up, I'm engaged in life. The hook comes. And then the moment that that hook comes, I turn towards it very intentionally in the way that I would with my daughter when she was younger and like something she needed my attention, right? And I understand, oh, something needs my attention in this moment I turn towards it with curiosity and a witness stance
3: that's very similar to the the Shenpa where you you use it's kind of in a way a more tantric practice because instead of rejecting the negativity you go oh this is fertile this mm-hmm. is fertilizer aspect mm-hmm. and also it's going to be found very closely connected to the wisdom aspect so confusion and wisdom in in the Buddhist are considered very close and co-emergent is the word we use. They they arise, they co-arise. The possibility for awareness and the possibility for getting stuck are kind of almost you know on the same, on the same breath. So with with the discipline, you're showing, you know, you, you're shifting, you're choosing the fiber that is curious, that's open, that's compassionate, that's aware, that's awake, and you're kind of not rejecting the other one because the other one got you there. Yeah, The one literally took you there.
4: Yeah, yeah, and, you and felt the,
3: the energy of it is very strong. So it's it's got it's got, it's strong medicine. We like taking strong medicine, you know, as opposed to aspirin.
1: Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. I I do I do think that there is some paradox inherent with cultivating the quality of um, gratitude and appreciation.
3: For that which hooks us, that's deep. <laughs> it is deep. I mean, it's like because there's so much. We're so close to the edge in the world, in so many parts, uh, aspects of the world, about not having appreciation for that which is hooking all of us right now, and it's almost humanity rejecting itself, and it's and it's and its heritage, you know. Um, it's It's very inspiring. and did you find Vipassana was this key? Is that is that was that the training that you undertook that sort of allowed you that uh, that much discipline and awareness to put your place your mind and your attention in it that is. way?
1: Absolutely. So when I first started my meditation practice, I um, my partner um, at the time, this was gosh, um, almost 20 years ago gave me Ram Das's book Be Here Now. And I was immediately, you talk about like this divine confusion, that book, that that book confused the hell out of me. I I was just like, my mind can't make any sense out of this. And that feeling is so compelling. I want to know what this man is talking about. Um, But then I, so I was, I was studying clinical and non-clinical mindfulness uh, intervention development at UCLA. And as a part of studying that, there was a program in psychiatry and neuroscience um, at their uh, Center for Mindfulness, was it Mindful Awareness Research Center? And they were the ones uh, with whom I took my first two or three day retreat. And in the context of that retreat, it was the first time that I had ever attempted to practice being withness with my own mind. And it was horrible. It was, it was terrible. It felt hellacious. But I do recall that there was a moment, maybe like on day two, when my thoughts ceased, maybe for the first time in my whole life. And there was something about that spaciousness that was startling to me. I didn't know. My mind just seemed like a constant, is it called monkey mind? You know, the merry-go-round, infinite.
3: Yeah, you experienced what many meditation uh, teachers would call a gap.
1: Mm, yes. Yeah. Precisely. Yeah. The
3: famous gap.
1: Yes, the gap, and the gap made me curious, wildly curious. And uh, then I asked. I said, you know, I I told the instructor there um, about that gap. I said, what do I, what do I do with this? How do I investigate this? And then he told me about Spirit Rock. And he was like, if you really, really want to go down a rabbit hole, you could try a seven day Vipassana retreat or a 10 day retreat and really, you know, see what it is that you find. And at the time, I was also actively in a lot of um, really intense grief. So um, going to Spirit Rock, being in that community, it was the only place that I found where um, I didn't have to hide my grief. Um, I was grieving, I was grieving the the sudden tragic loss of my brother. And um, my grief wasn't a problem. It was okay. In fact, it was encouraged. And I was given a, a language and, and a set of toolkits um, for being in relationship with, the, with my mind and with my body. Um, and that was just like so important because honestly, like I'd always felt like I was like born into this body for like the millionth time. I remember, I think I told you when we were together, I remember being a kid and railing at my mom being like, put me back. I thought I did my time on this planet, (laughs) you know, like I was really, I was really quite incensed at having reincarnated again.
3: It's like the Godfather. You remember that scene, the Godfather, they're pulling me back. I thought yeah. I was out, and they're pulling me back in.
1: Yeah, that's how I felt. They really did.
3: And you were a child. You were, yeah,
1: four. Eight. Or, yeah, four or I five? Was, yeah, I was always asking my mom. I was, I so number one, I was convinced that she had found me, that I had come from the ocean. I was like, I've come from the ocean, and I need you to put me back to where I came from. I'd say it to her all the time. I'd be like, mom, I love you. Ema. Ema is what I call my mom. Ema, I love you. But can you put me back in the ocean where I belong?
3: I'm saying this only half in just, do you think you were an octopus?
1: <laughs> um, maybe a dolphin.
3: Dolphin? Poss- Octop- octopi are extremely intelligent. I know you know that, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Possibly an octopus. Possibly. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
3: Octopi, did you ever see My uh, Octopus Teacher, that movie?
1: What's that No, no. So oh, people...
3: oh, okay. Put that on the required reading list because they're extraordinarily intelligent, you know. Um, and um, uh, there's a lot more to that in terms of, um, you know, where we show up and stuff. So I'm going to just plant that seed that you look more into the octopi okay. reality. Okay,
4: okay, okay. <laughs> I will I'll
1: definitely do that, yeah.
3: Um, Like, they, they had an octopus in a uh, uh, container in a research lab, you know, and they filmed it, they videotaped it, so they knew it did this. It actually crawled out, uh, it, it took the lid off of the thing, went up through the, the uh, ventilation system, went up three floors, went to another place, grabbed a banana or some fruit or something like that, came, came back down. Came back into the uh, enclosure that it was in. Put the lid back on. <laughs> this is no joke. They're really there's a great film for those of you who haven't seen it, called My Octopus Teacher, and um, you know one of one of my friends said if it gets rough on planet Earth, that's where we're reincarnating in, in, on, wow. in the ocean as octopi. But yeah. uh, anyhow, um, it's worth it's worth examining. Uh, so the ocean is interesting. I wonder if that was metaphorical or even literal. Do you have a literal feeling about the ocean? You love the ocean?
1: Um, I do love the ocean, but I have had many dreams. When I was a child, I used to dream a lot about um returning to an ocean based planet and all the people there. I remember in those dreams, I would like run, I, I had like a humanoid body, um, but like bit of flippers in between all of my appendages and I remember in the dream I recall I would sit there and kind of stroke the gills at the side of my neck and I I had a job that a part of my job was to keep the water flowing through the living water apparatus of this planet and I I don't know I would show up in this place Quite regularly as a child. So sometimes I, I wonder if, you know, um, in our explorations right now with like the James Webb telescope and we're finding all of these like exoplanets and we're on the search for watery um, planets out there in the universe. You know, well, maybe. of
3: course, you saw the Avatar film, the second Avatar film, right?
1: I saw part of it on a plane, just part of it. And then it's we.
3: The, it's the water world. The, 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 that, that's the part where they're in the the first one is the earth and the second one is there in this water world and beings are sort of looking sort of like what you're talking about
1: yeah yeah but I had this dream way before uh is it James Cameron is he the one who
3: yeah James Cameron yeah I was
1: but, dreaming before, yeah
3: yeah well you you didn't make the movie though and <laughs> you know <laughs> you could have <laughs> um yeah so do you have any sense that mind What's your sense of mind or consciousness shaping the physical reality? You know, this is like, for example, there you you mentioned um, the dreaming aspect. There's, uh, you know, what's called the six yogas of Naropa, which is a very old uh, set of advanced Buddhist tantric practices. One of them is called uh, dream yoga, which is the ability to do lucid dreaming. And it's coupled with what's called illusory um Illusory reality. Where during the waking life you recognize the illusory, the dreamlike quality. During yes. the dream, you recognize the lucid quality.
1: Yes. Yes.
3: So you start feeling that mind might be shaping more than we think it is. You know, there's a certain kind of blocked out sense of physicality that we that we can I can't fit through that door. But you start to realize that a lot of the experience is happening at the level of consciousness, uh, shaping the reality. And of course, the reality also shapes the consciousness. Yes. So when you did your medicine. Did you uh, journeys did you come in contact with any of that kind of feeling like this is really a dream
1: um yeah you know i'll say a few things that i i think have been really interesting so i have been journeying with lsd and psilocybin um for quite some time and um Many times I will have an experience of my corporeal body completely dissipating into no self, no self, no thing, just gone. And I've always found it fascinating because there's like a sense of total timelessness, no time, no space, no self. And then there becomes a moment when there is some aspect of my consciousness, this hook that we were talking about earlier, I feel that there is some part of a me which then attempts to hook back to this reality in order that I don't, I suppose you could say, as it were, completely die. And I can... That I'm very much aware of a something attempting to hook back to here and now in this body. But I'm gonna take that one step further and say that um, over the course of the past 10 years, and actually I've been really I've been really excited to ask you about this phenomenon that I've been experiencing. Sometimes I'm really sleepy, and in the middle of the day, I'll feel myself kind of headed towards nap time. And so I'll be starting to take a nap. And I'm like in that liminal space that's like sort of somewhere between sleeping and waking, where I'm still aware of my conscious body, but there's like a feeling of falling. There's like a feeling of like descending. But what has been happening is, I'm going to see if I can put this into words. Sometimes there is this feeling of like instead of going to sleep, my consciousness, it feels like, it feels like I'm dying. There's some, it's so hard for me to put into words, but there is this sense that like, whoever I think Sarah is, is rapidly descending, disintegrating. There's like a sound, there's a tone, there's like a feeling, there's like a vibratory quality and like darkness and then there's just this moment in my consciousness where I'm like, where some aspect of Sura is like, wait a minute, I'm not ready. I'm not ready. And then there's this hook and I can feel there's a some sort of energy in my being that I feel that I have to gather. And I don't know where in the heck, there's no location that I'm gathering this energy, but it's just this felt subjective state of, I must intend to stay here somehow or else we're on our way somewhere else. And then there is this feeling of like, I I try in that moment to hook onto some aspect of me, of Sarah to stay here. And there's like, there's like this feeling of like reaching for my body to stay in my body. And there's a varying degrees of like effort that it requires to hook back to here and now. So far I've done it because I'm still here, but it happens totally without warning, absolutely spontaneously. And every single time, David, it feels like a mini death. And this has probably happened to me maybe like, I don't know, maybe 50 times, over the course of the past um, decade and it just, it just started out of nowhere and I haven't really been able to understand it's like a near maybe I don't know if you'd call it a near death experience, but it, it's something, it's something that happens in my life.
3: Well, definitely the surrounding topic is Bardo, the Mm. Bardos.
1: Mm.
3: Are you familiar with that concept of Bardo? Yes. There, there's a lot of fairly you know, elaborate teachings about the Bardo's. There are six of them. The um, the meaning is in between, like mm-hmm. it's between this and that. There's a kind of a space, uh, particularly after physical body dies. That's a very explicit Bardo, right? That you're, you're, they're still consciousness operational, but it doesn't have the reference point of the physical body, like what you're talking about. So what it grabs at is this sort of uh, energy body and the feeling of, um, familiar emotions, uh, you know, but like a dream. There's no, and, and, and so what they say about it is that you're very sensitive in that state. And mm-hmm. it's crazy, they say seven times more, like if you feel grief, it's seven times more intense because the body grounds us.
2: Mm-hmm. The body
3: stabilizes our experience. So that that's the thing. But there's other bardos, like the gap just between one thought and another thought is a bardo. And they, there's one called the bardo of everyday life. Just this is a bardo. This is an in-between uh, experience. But we don't touch that so much. We we've solidified it to, to the point where we don't experience the in-betweeniness of it, you know. So I think you're talking about Bardo experience. So if that's the case, here's some good advice from Trungpa Rinpoche, who I know you 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 like and uh you know uh, who was you know my uh my root teacher and you know um I I think voiced some of these teachings in the most um, accessible but powerful way in, in the early uh, days of him being here in the 70s. And then he also gave us what, what I call pith instructions, which is when you work with a teacher closely, which some people get to, they might say one thing. you know. So like Ram Dass and Maharaji, let's take that coupling. Maharaji told Ram Dass, love everybody and tell the truth. Mm-hmm. That's a pith instruction. You don't have to like elaborate on that. You just try to hold that. Uh and of course, you know what Ramdas said? What? The truth is I don't love everybody.
4: <laughs> yeah. Yeah.
3: So that's why that. But here's what Rimbate told me once, which I really pass on quite happily. He said, Don't panic. <laughs> Okay. Okay. <laughs> so any of these experiences that are happening, you know, where you're losing your body or whatever, no matter what, the instruction is, you know, don't panic. But there was a second half of the instruction, which is, you know, which is what makes it really kind of powerful. And he said, don't panic when things are shaky, but also when things are going well, don't relax, he said. Mhm.
4: Yeah.
3: You know, so that I try to Follow those fifth instructions. I try to love everybody and tell the truth. And I try not to panic and also not to get too comfy, you know, in, in when things are kind of smooth, but they're not panicking. If you think about it, if you just had that one seed instruction, that's the instruction you give to somebody when they're dying. If you get, if you're lucky enough to whisper in their ear when they're dying, that's what you want to tell them. Don't freak out. Don't panic. Whatever happens, you're losing this kind of reference point. you you may be in a world with all kinds of images and experiences uh, don't uh, don't panic about it. don't 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 be afraid or be curious, as you're saying. Curious about
1: it, yeah, I do think that that is the what you're describing is the essence of the only instruction that has arisen for me from these experiences um is i I know that they are instructive in some capacity. I couldn't really say in what way. But I also know that I have experienced uh, alongside of those, maybe we might call them near-death experiences, um, spontaneous near-death experiences. Um, I have been lucid dreaming. I've lucid dreamed throughout most of my life. Um, But then there has been this occurrence of when I'm awake, circumstances happening that map exactly onto lucid dreams that i have had so precisely and there's a feeling of it in my gut there is not even in my gut it's like my whole body will remember in that moment oh my goodness i dreamt about this exact moment and i'm in it i'm living it it's happening right now and then that gives me this feeling this like pronounced feeling of being seen this like i see you from the universe, that I love, I love, I love, I love that feeling of recognition. It's so meaningful to me.
3: Yeah, um, and how do you handle your energy when that's happening? What do you do? Anything? Grateful. You, it sounds like you you have, you have some gratitude about it.
1: I definitely feel. Gratitude, but I also feel that it is an opportunity to practice concentration. Mm-hmm. I really do my best to practice. It's this being withness, this term mm-hmm. I keep saying, to really be with what is happening so that I can receive of whatever instructions are coming through. And when I say instructions, I don't mean something verbal but rather something regarding presence and uh witnessing is formulating in my being
3: and there are a message in the bottle yeah. part is part of that too so you know as we're talking about this one of the processes that I'm particularly interested in is Oracle uh I've always been drawn towards it oracles, when you get a chance to meet oracles. So for whatever, because I'm curious about it, probably I got to meet two um, oracles of the Dalai Lama. Um, one is Nechung Oracle, who's been for hundreds of years, this uh, different monks who channel this particular oracle, who is an advisor to the Dalai Lama. And it's a well-documented thing. I'm not saying any esoteric thing. And he puts on an incredible headdress and they, they you know, all that, all the horns are playing. And then he he goes up to the Dalai Lama. They have a few of the older monks who can speak the dialect that he's. In. And it's kind of <laughs> and and then he will give it in He'll say something. He'll tell him something, yeah. including I'm told leave Tibet tonight. This is not safe for you anymore here. So it's sort of like an extra. He calls it his other house of advisors. You know, it's like this is the whole thing. So I met the oracle, the the, the Kutan Kutan, who's the the monk is a simple, beautiful, lovely monk, but he can channel this oracle. Mm-hmm. And I asked him. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm like a very, um, I'm not going to say fearless, but nudgy. You know me. I'm nudgy. It's like <laughs> I, I got into it with him. I said, what is it like? What happens? And he described the physical sensation of it, which was like, he said, like, you know that feeling if you're in an airplane and the plane drops 200 feet? Yeah. You know, it's like, so there's a sudden shift of atmosphere like that. Yes. And then he feels like the oracle is, uh, has taken his body and he's somewhere well-kept nearby and for when it's time for him to come back in. But it's a different being. It's a, literally a different uh, entity. And he feels a, a, a good vibe with it. Um, but many uh, in these, uh, uh, in the sort of more esoteric Tibetan Teachings. The oracular process is called divination. Or they call it a mo sometimes, and you you know, like I Ching. You can you can. Is it, I Ching is an oracle, and mm-hmm. you you read you read the situation by going out of it for a minute. You you let it go, and 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 now there's a sort of feeling of spaciousness, and, and then something the message in the bottle comes in.
4: Yeah,
3: yeah. which could be like an actual instruction, or it could be a feeling, or a name,
1: it could be anything. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, what you're describing sounds very resonate, very much resonates with me with um, um, part of what I would describe as um, the process of holding space, um, facilitating whether you know, teaching in some capacity. Um, I have experienced, I, Uh, So I actually was just at the Garrison Institute um, a few days ago, uh, co-facilitating a retreat on contemplative leadership. And um, afterwards, somebody came up to me and they said, they said, hey, Dr. King. Whoa, everybody was so taken with what you were saying and you were receiving a lot of attention. Does that make you feel some kind of way to have... So many people like give you attention. What is that like? And, and I thought about it and um, I, one of the reasons why um, facilitating or teaching gives me so much joy is that that's one of the times when I'm the most clear that it's not about me. Crystal, Clear. and you know this idea of there being a teacher for me I sense that the teacher is the here and now it is the space that we are holding together collectively the teacher is us not a me or an I And so the more that I can practice this, this being witness can occur with my own body and mind, but it can also occur in the space of togetherness, of interdependence, of being a part of a collective. And so for me, I think that the more that I can drop into a space of no self and practice this being witness, this togetherness, that is the space in which the teachings, the message in the bottle, arises.
3: So I'm wondering, you shared with me when we spoke a project, a little bit of an outline of a project that you're working on. And I don't know if it's it may not be public domain as yet, so I want to be mindful of that. Um, but is there any part of that that you could share in this context? What you're, what you're cooking up there?
1: I can I can share a little of what the rock is cooking. Um, <laughs> so uh, I have a company called Mindheart Collective, um, and underneath that a company um, called Mindheart AI. Mm-hmm. And I am developing um, from my research at Oregon Health Science University a map of human awareness. Uh, so this map of human awareness has eight different layers. The first six of which are um, really exp- an exploration of, you know, this idea of like, how could we map out our um, memories and emotions and feelings and thoughts and sensations? How might we map the um, what I like to call intergenerational data? So our awareness of our ancestors past as well as descendants slash future ancestors epigenetic data how might we um, map the stories that we tell ourselves about um, our feelings of health and vitality or disease and then and that all all of that rich complex data is what is happening underneath our skin without us moving at all just like really, when I envisioned this map, it came to me during a meditation. And there is such a rich, complex world of subjectivity happening in the course of our meditation when we're sitting still. So the next two layers of the map are an exploration of what happens to our awareness the moment that we move from stillness to action, right? So we're expressing agency through behavior or relationships, or just the way that we move our bodies through space. The final layer of the map, and this map is called the systems-based awareness map, is what happens in the space of our awareness, of our engagement with society, culture, and the environment. So really this map is uh, attempting to create a data visualization of everything that is happening in the field of our internal awareness and mapping that onto our external awareness to create a holistic map of our moment to moment awareness. Now, what is the utility of that? Um, I think having a map of human awareness is essential because we cannot change anything that we're not aware of. And so fundamentally, we need to practice the cultivation of awareness so that we can first see, perceive what is.
3: We, we certainly can't change it for the better. Right. <laughs> we yeah. may be able to do the other thing without awareness. Good
1: you know? point. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> no, that is a really, that is a really good point. Yes. Yeah. Mm. So, but then... No. Map and where,
3: what what form does this map take? Is it data? Is it is it uh, uh, um, what is it? Is is it a graphic uh, depiction? What what form does it take?
1: Uh, so So um, the systems based awareness map uh, takes data from storytelling. So it's a map that you're meant to be in conversation with. Really mm-hmm. use a lot of this like Chat GPT, like large language models and machine. <laughs> So whatever data of your subjective experience that you choose to tell the map is valid on this interface, but it is actively weaving this storytelling data with any wearable that you might have on,
3: right. you know, a wow.
1: watch or an Oura ring or Fitbit or like whatever it is. And so it is really showing you moment to moment, this relationship between your body's biometrics and your storytelling. And very importantly, a lot of the time there's actually this huge gap between the stories that we tell ourselves about what we're aware of and what's actually happening inside of our bodies. So it is meant to Which is
3: dissociation, isn't it? That's that's how we dissociate. Um the story leaves the body, they're not insane.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I would I would also, yeah, I would say that dissociation is a part of it, but also sometimes what's happening inside of us is so complex that it's just so hard to put it into words mm-hmm. for another person, another human being to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there, if you choose, because choice is so much a part of this Mind Heart AI platform. So you can choose to interact just at the level of looking at this moving, shifting map of your moment to moment awareness on the platform. Now, if you would like to explore how to support your well being, Take it one step further, that's going to connect you to what's called a loving awareness map. And the loving awareness map is learning from the AI, from the machine learning. Okay, if I would really like to work on cultivating the qualities of maybe forgiveness or loving kindness or acceptance or gratitude or any of these emotional states that we know are so conducive to supporting health and well being, you can tell the map that. It's going to show you an example of how your awareness might shift if you apply these practices. But then beyond that, it's also going to connect you to either a whole library of digital well being supports that the AI is learning about that is personalized to you and your experience of moment to moment awareness, or it will connect you to well being supports in your community. So, doctors, nurses, healthcare practitioners yoga studios mutual aid organizations you name it
3: Roth, i'm feeling like i imagine my grandfather must have felt when they invented television
4: <laughs> so, <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
3: And the only difference is I think the accelerando on this is going to be faster. You know, how, what's your timetable for like, let's say this is something that you're developing in a you know, somewhat manifest level of even something that people could access. Is that a year from now? Is that two years? Is that five years from now? When, when is this just like, oh, yeah, I did that yesterday, you know?
1: That part, David, is a little bit hard to say. I used to, I used to say nine months to a year from now, we're gonna have this prototype for people to beta test. But the way that AI is developing right now, it is developing, the field is developing so exponentially fast that it might be much sooner that this product is available to beta test.
3: And you know, this is a common thread. I, I'm really um, like I watched um, a smirkanish on—he's on I, he's at MSNBC or CNN—episode about AI lovers. It's a big deal. All of a sudden, really fast, coming on, and a lot of young men, you know, you uh, maybe even younger than you, you all, your crowd, are not coupling up anymore. They're not like opening themselves to being parents, to having romantic relationships, to getting married. And he was saying this is a very real thing that already has taken hold that you can create your own ideal romantic partner uh, as an AI. So do you have any, uh, you know, it's it's a kind of specious conversation. People project their own paranoia or, or aspiration onto it. Do you have any concern about AI that you want to share with, uh, with us before they completely take over the, the bowling alley that we're playing in?
1: I mean, of course I do. I mean, <laughs> I... Although, hang on, you, you 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 hooked me a little bit there with the yeah. <laughs> lover part. Um, and a part of the reason why I want to a- explore that a little bit is because, and 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 I'm actually going to wrap my response into the whole question of like what I think we should be concerned about is that, mm-hmm. you know, number one, there's a way in which <clears throat> the conversation with AI is really framed as this technology which is somehow not human not a part of us. Mm. The AI only does what we tell it to do. It is only a lie. It only lives, if you were. It only, not lives, but rather performs on the basis of the data that we feed it. That's
3: it. Well, it. Isn't that true of our children, too?
1: Yes. Yeah, the corollary, the corollary yeah. of learning and education is very apt. Right. So I think that... We really need to be paying attention to our own agency and ownership. Every single person in humanity has an important role to play in this mm-hmm. conversation because we are talking about the very boundaries of consciousness. We are talking about the future of humanity in terms of the development of biosynthetic beings, right? So you're talking about an AI lover, right? That makes me think about some of the, these like uh robots that are being developed in japan to be personal companions because there's this epidemic of loneliness right and really this conversation is about like what is a human what is consciousness what is intelligence who gets to define that who as in who in power Mm -hmm. is defining that for us rather than with us Mm -hmm. and they are defining it on the basis of very conscientious choices that they are making along the lines of what data they are picking mm-hmm. to the development of this AI. The data that is being fed into the system is fundamentally very biased, mm-hmm. right? So it is really taking, in a way, you could even use the the, the language of causes and conditions. Mm-hmm. Taking a lot of the causes and conditions of human suffering and then mainlining that. <laughs> right? was really going to shape every single aspect of our lives, right? So I was I was I was just actually a part of a conversation at Columbia University and it was um, done by uh, Dr. Angela Acosta's Acosta Institute and the House of Beautiful Business. And the name of the conversation was Can AI Heal Us? very provocative title. And a lot of what we talked about is like, well, if the people who have the power to develop this technology right now are themselves not concerned with their own healing, then how do we think that the products being produced are going to have that capacity for us?
3: So how old is your daughter now? She is 15 years old. <laughs> you know, teenagers came to my mind. It's like, you know, when you train, you, you know, you train your kids as much as you can, of course. But when they become a teenager, something starts to happen, which is like they really have a mind of their own. Uh, yeah. and, and it's connected with a robot body of their own that they can uh-huh. activate whatever reality is with the car or with that, you know, whatever. So, How's, how's that going? If you don't mind just jumping on the topic. Do you, do you, do you have a, uh, a... What's your daughter like?
1: Dahlia is an extraordinary human being. She is an artist at heart. Um, so she's always drawing, creating, making, sculpting, just constantly doing things with her hands. And one thing I think is really interesting about Dahlia is that she doesn't have any social media by
3: choice whoa you're kidding me
1: yeah so she has said to me that she's very conscientious of the ways in which trauma and mental health amongst her adolescent community has been negatively impacted by social media so she oh. doesn't partake
3: i've I never know. heard anybody i've never heard another parent say that yeah, that's the first that's the first yeah heard the parents say they want to restrict and limit it but i've never heard a a, a a a young person coming up and saying i don't want this I and mean, that's very unusual isn't it
1: it's very unusual she loves youtube because youtube has like lots of ted talks and it has lots of instructional videos for how mm-hmm. to make art she's really like self-taught in a lot of ways and she's always constructing her own little like curriculums and watching anime and then figuring out how to create these things on her own. Um, but she's, she's exquisitely, I call her my little Dharma seed Mm She's self-aware. Um, she tells me, I remember when she was 12, I love telling this story. She told me that she remembers the time before time as where she has come from. And she said, you know, mom, and I go to school every day and I'm surrounded by these adults and they're trying to tell me what to do. And I just think it's so interesting because they don't seem to remember who they are in order to be telling me what to do. But I remember who I am because I remember where I came from. The time before time. I said. You remember that? <laughs> yeah, it's not like images or anything like that feeling
3: this this may be a hidden uh, aspect of what's happening now is that the assumption is that the biological people yeah are the same people with the same capacity that are just coming around for another round but they may be really in sync with the time uh and and so uh i've noticed something in in some young people that they seem to have kind of um Uh, another level of capacity i used to call it indigo you know that was a term that people used about that um but uh so you can't assume that the human evolution is uh something that is static now and the machines are going to like quickly uh take off but you said something about a biosynthetic individual which that was that stuck in my mind do you do you visualize a possibility of that
1: oh absolutely i mean I think that the only way that human beings are going to uh, get very far off of this planet, um, because travel in space really wears and tears on the body as it is right now. And I think in order for us to, you know, get to the, mm, the closest star, you no, know, like galaxy, um, that travel in terms of light years, everybody on that ship gonna be dead before we even get. You know what I mean, but my feeling is, and this is not me talking with like a scientist hat on um, whatsoever. You know, I'm just like a, a layperson fan of cosmology and quantum physics. Um, my feeling is that we will leave this Earth, but in order mm-hmm. for us to do that, we will have to generate a biosynthetic body, meaning we will have to figure out a way to um, merge human consciousness with a synthetic body. And then those would be the beings that's kind of like humanity 2.0 who would actually have the capacity to get into the ships and I don't know, go to, let's say Andromeda, which is our closest nearby galaxy. I'm very I'm very excited about thinking about biosynthetic beings as our future ancestors. And sometimes when I meditate or when I'm just in my practice, I have this kind of experiment while I'll say to myself, okay, I'm about to sit into my practice. So, okay, Sarah, this body has died. This body has transitioned. And in theory, I have reincarnated. 250, 2,000, I don't know, 10,000 years from now, I've reincarnated. And that me in the future, who maybe is a biosynthetic being, is sitting in their practice right now, thinking of me, Sarah, today, their ancestor. They're reaching out to me now. Okay. All right. So what kind of information are they trying to communicate? What do they want know about what life is like in the future what are they trying to pass down to me their ancestor
3: and and what do you want them to know
1: I want them to know that i see them and i hear them and i feel them and i love them and i'm doing my very very best on a day-to-day basis to to create from a place in my heart that is anchored in love to to create spaces and environments and products and relationships that are going to build the bridge to the possibility that they exist. Because we got to keep on living, right, as a species in order for them to exist in the future. And I'm very concerned that The way that we are operating right now, especially in terms of climate change, is fundamentally jeopardizing their capacity to exist in the
3: future. You know what the um, name of my first guitar album was? (laughs) No. From Here to Nickternity. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah oh I love that I love that you know you know what that reminds me of David um when I for most of my childhood I had no idea how old my mom was no idea I think I think she she really this is like one of my first you could say maybe zen teachings or contemplative teachings anytime i would ask my mom mom this is me as a little kid mom how old are you she would always have the same response i'm eternal (laughs) (laughs) he would say completely straight face yeah i'm eternal i had to break into this woman's purse and find her driver's license Mm -hmm. (laughs) when I was a teenager so that I could finally figure out how old she was because she really meant it.
3: As long as your mother-in-law doesn't say that, you're in good shape.
4: I know, I know. know.
3: (laughs) Uh, It's so great to talk to you. I mean, it's just, um, you know, it's it's kind of self-replenishing. You know, the, the, I guess we're at the end because of time, relative time factor. Uh, but it always feels like we're a little bit at the beginning at the same time. So uh, is there anything that you want to let people know about that you're doing and they could come there and, and you know, study with you, learn from you? Because I think um, I, I've seen you teach in, in the public situation. We taught together at the at the, at the retreat in Boone. Um I feel like anything I could do to help people, direct people in your direction, to just share space and time with you, and also, the, you know, there's a lot of baloney about neuroscience going on, and I'm sure you know that better than anybody. People are talking about, it, like myself, who don't know much about it, but you are a neuroscientist who's also a Buddhist uh, a meditator, uh, and and you have a very fresh take on some of this stuff. So where can we, where can my friends out here and your friends find you to hang out with you a little bit?
1: I'm so happy that you asked me that because I love hanging out. Um, I would say please find me on Instagram at MindHeart Collective. That is where I'm always posting about like upcoming events. I will be teaching at a variety of different places. Um, definitely the Garrison Institute, um, Omega Institute, mm-hmm. Salin, Kripalu. I have okay that I'm going to be teaching coming up over the um, course of 2024.
3: And those will be on your website or on that Instagram page or where was the best place to find that?
1: Instagram page. It will also be on my website. My website is mineheartcollective.com. Um, and so I'll definitely be posting about that there. Um, I am also, you know, something that I just really want to um, share from my heart in this moment. It's a desire that I have. I, I would really love to Offer regular virtual space to mm. practice. With people. Um, that isn't something that I have done yet. And it is something that I very much look forward to doing in some capacity. Um, I am going to be posting meditations to Insight Timer that are pre recorded. But I feel like I, I really want to have the opportunity to use this Zoom environment to have a community of practice with people. Um, so that is something that I hope to be able to make an announcement about in the, in the near future. Um, and well, also- I'm hoping,
3: I'm hoping you could do some of that with Dharma Moon. I mean, uh, huh? I think our crowd would, would just, um, you know, be very keen on carrying on some of these kind of conversations. So, so at least we'll have a chat about that. And, uh, you know, I, 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 I just want to make sure that you're, um, uh, that I could do whatever I could to help your vision come to life that's um that's sort of you know feels like a very um natural outcome of our knowing each other
1: Mm, i would love that david i mean i i want to be a little vulnerable right now and say that you feel like family Mm. and thank you sweet yeah so i would i just you know just um my heart is just so full of Gratitude right now for you and for your community and for your offer of support.
3: Yeah. Well, to be continued, and uh, for right now, friends out there, um, Dr. Sarah King is um, in the in the house.
4: House. <laughs>
3: okay. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll see you soon. We'll talk soon. Okay. Thank you. Thank you so much.
2: There you have it, folks. Episode number 49 of the Creativity, Spirituality, and Making a Book podcast on the Be Here Now Network featuring Dr. Sarah King. We would like to extend a heartfelt thank you to Dr. King for joining us on the podcast and taking time to share her experience and wisdom with all of us. We would like to thank everyone at Be Here Now for their help with production on the podcast. And if you like this podcast, we encourage everyone listening to head over to BeHereNowNetwork.com to check out their ever-expanding library of podcasts emanating wisdom from the world's wisdom traditions. If you like our podcast, we encourage you to subscribe, give us a like, tell your friends, leave a positive review. These things really help us get the word out. And that's it for today, folks. Thank you so much for listening. We sincerely hope that this podcast benefits you and your life. And may you be safe, healthy, happy, and at ease. All the best.